Adrian, if you don't know me. Uh, and hopefully, if you don't know me, I'll get to know you by the end of this morning, as it'd be very nice to get to know you. Um, I get the privilege of continuing this series that we are looking in the gospel, the account of John, about Jesus. And therefore, not surprisingly, we've said that this series is therefore all about Jesus. Uh, and our kind of invitation, I guess, is within all that's going on within life, to live with three words that we use as a bit of a mantra within Oasis Church, is just to pause. Pause from everything else that's going on. And in that pause to then center and consider the wonder of who Jesus is. And that as we consider the wonder of who Jesus is, to then continue. To continue to allow the wonder of who he is to shape everything of who we are. And that's all we're trying to do through this series. And therefore, I wonder if I could start by praying for us. Uh, I don't ordinarily do that, actually. I just felt like today it would be a good thing to do. And so I wonder if you don't mind if you close your eyes just so you don't get distracted by others. We don't close our eyes at some mystical moment. It's just literally a very practical thing. Jesus, I just ask now, would you come and reveal yourself more to each and every one of us? I pray, Jesus, for those who've come in just trying to wonder more about who you are, not quite knowing. I pray, come and reveal something of yourself to them. I pray for others of us who've been walking with you for, for periods and varying periods of time. I, I just ask, reveal something more of yourself to us now. I pray, Jesus, take the frailty of who I am and use it to reveal the magnitude and wonder of who you are. Amen. I'm going to start with a question, actually, and the question is, is this, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Um, why don't you just turn to the person next to you, and maybe not ask you like that, but maybe in a nice way, a kind of polite way, a kind of way of getting to know someone else, say, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> Some of you think, really? Can I? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely turn to someone near you and just say, who are you? And they may ask you, who are you? Okay, if I can grab you back. My guess is that we'll, in answer to that question, we might say our name, we might say something about our life stage, something about what we do, something to describe ourselves. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to look at the next part of this good news of John, where he's going to draw in his first witness, his first witness of who Jesus is. And the confusion here is that John is going to introduce the first witness, who's also called John. And so I'm going to be John and John. And that's always confusing when you're looking at two Johns. And so we're going to define one of them as John the Baptist. In order that we know he's not the writer of John, rather he's the first witness. And what we're going to discover in this story is a group of people who are sent by the religious leaders of the day are out to find out, who are you, John? And they come with that question, who are you? And John the Baptist, as we're going to discover, doesn't seem to answer it. Because for him, we're going to discover the question of who he is isn't important. Rather, the question is, who's the one he's pointing to? Which is what we're going to see. So let's jump in. John chapter 1, verse 19. It reads this. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders, that's John the Baptist, testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, 
Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer so we can take it back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So I don't know about you, I just feel like John's kind of still being pretty mysterious here, isn't it? Who are you? I am the voice of one calling out. Anyway, let's skip through. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus. Now let's just pause for a moment here. Because the Gospel of John is crafted with beauty. And in this moment where you get the location of Bethany followed with the next day, there's a purpose in that. And it's a purpose, if we flick to the next slide, the beauty of the crafted is actually revealed and that Bethany next day, and you can find it in this amazing book, it's a bit mind-blowing, The Gospel of Glory by Richard Borkham, that actually he reveals that this moment, the next day, is in order, it's like a signpost. Within John's Gospel, we have these different signposts that are there to say, hey, take note of this. And in this moment, you find there's a location, which is Bethany. Whenever Bethany is mentioned in the Gospel of John, you need to put your ears out and say, oh, what's going on here? Because it's a key event that's going to happen. We're going to find the next moment Bethany is revealed is when it's going to be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But then it's like to indicate the next moment that Bethany is going to be mentioned. And that's really important. Why? Because in this moment, as we've just heard, there's a next day. And what John does here is he's actually giving a seven-day period. A seven-day period where he's going to reveal more about who Jesus is. It's going to end on the seventh day with the first sign. The sign of water being turned into wine at the wedding of Cana. Now, that first lot of seven days is going to be mirrored by the last lot of seven days, which happens when the next Bethany happens. So not the Bethany of Lazarus, the one after that. And on that moment of Bethany, it's to get your ears pricked up because the next seven days are going to happen. And that seven days is going to start to answer everything that's revealed about Jesus in the first seven days. And at the end of that seven days, it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? At the end of that seven days, there's going to be the seventh sign that John has been pointing to, and that seventh sign is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, at that point, you can think, is that there by chance? Oh, no, it's not there by chance. This is crafted beauty. But why there's these seven days is also because John wants us to remember, hey, seven's quite significant in terms of Bible story. You see, there's a seven days at the very beginning of the Bible that reveals the story of creation. And he's wanting to get a hold and say, hey, these seven-day moments are the announcement of a new creation. A new creation that's promised and a new creation that's going to be revealed that's all about Jesus. 
But not only that, but that number seven throughout the Bible is the number that reveals completeness. And so when Jesus, when Paul, John, I'll get there eventually, won't I? Jesus, Paul, John, John gets to that last seven up to chapter 20 with the seventh sign on the seventh day of Jesus' resurrection, it's in order to say, hey, this is completion. It's finished. The new has started. I don't know about you, but sometimes you can read the Bible and you think, oh, yeah, whatever. The next day. And there's moments that you then take it back. And it's like, like the Matrix. I don't remember if you remember that. The first Matrix. I'm not talking about the other two. The other two were rubbish. The first Matrix film kind of blew your mind. You suddenly thought, what is reality? This is one of those moments where you look at the Bible and you think, the Bible we should never take at just surface level. It's there to be discovered for the whole of our lives to enrich the wonder of who God is and therefore who we are in light of it. Anyway, that's just a throwaway. Look out for it as we go through John. Seven days, the seven, the seven signs. Maybe tick them off. First sign you already know, when in Cana. Seventh sign you know, resurrection of Jesus. Look out for the other five. Anyway, let's continue, because that was just an aside. Um, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And we're going to look at that a little later if we get there as that word could be God's chosen one or God's son. But we'll get there hopefully by the end. Who are you? That's the question. Who are you, John? And John says, look, it's not about me. They come saying, no, no, but are you, are you the promised one? Are you the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised king? No, I'm not that. Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? It's not important who I am. And he says, no, I'm like a voice. What does that mean? He's, he's like a signpost. A signpost pointing to the one that everyone wants to, needs to take note of. And the thing is, John the Baptist wasn't what everyone was expecting. And what he's saying is, just as I'm not what you're expecting, one is coming who is the promised one, who is the sign that you've been looking for, who is the Messiah that you've been expecting, but he's not what you were expecting. He's not going to look like you thought he did. And to be honest, the rest of John's gospel is going to keep revealing that, where people keep saying, are, are you really it? Are you really the king? Because if you were, you'd do this, wouldn't you? But Jesus is like, no, I am, but I'm just different to what you're expecting, because what I'm here to do is much bigger than what you're expecting. I'm here to bring about a whole new creation, not the raising up of one nation, but the promised blessing for all nations. 
So John then says, look, I'm the signpost of him to come. And then he says, and you need to understand, understand something about the one who is to come. It's about footwear. There's this weird thing. He goes, you know, Jesus, like, he's the one. He doesn't call him Jesus at this point. The one to come is one whose sandals I couldn't even untie. Now, at that point, we might think, right, okay, a footwear illustration on sandals. We don't get that. Well, in that culture, in that moment, the only person who would be deemed able to untie someone else's shoes or sandals was the slave. Someone who was owned to do that. Someone whose position was seen as lower than anyone else's. They're the only one who could be deemed to take someone else's shoes off. And John the Baptist says, oh yeah, but I'm not even worthy to be what you view as the lowest compared to this person. I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. And that's I don't know about you, but that, that kind of undoes me a bit. Like, who John sees Jesus as is one who is more splendid, more majestic than who John is. So much so that John feels like, man, I can't even be around him. I'm not worthy to kind of be at feet level untying shoes. See, sometimes in our rush to remember Jesus of John 15 that declares, I am your friend. Jesus of John 20, who says, now we're family. My father is our father. Is also the Jesus that we have to remember is one that actually is far beyond us. More wonderful and majestic and beautiful than we could describe. In actual fact, if he was to walk in the room, we'd kind of cower a bit at first because we think, he's just too good. Who am I compared to him? And in a moment, I want us to get to see that perspective. That perspective that John the Baptist has of the wonder of who Jesus is. Not in order that we cower thinking, who am I? But rather that we get to that point of the richness then. Where Jesus in John 15 will say, you're my friends. That's why I lay down my life. John 20, you're my family. My father is now our father is the one who is the majestic, beautiful, glorious one. And yet we approach knowing the intimacy of friendship, the intimacy of family. Therefore, John says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus, oh, he's the Lamb of God. I don't know how you get described by other people. I don't mean how you describe yourself, but how do you describe others? Often if it's someone they don't know, we might use familiar people, kind of frames of reference to say, oh, you know this person, they're a bit like that person. So I know for me, over the years, because of the fact I went grey quite early, I went grey by the time I was 25. Uh, I don't know why it just happened. Um, and it just continued. And therefore, I often got likened to people who all have one thing in common. They're male, and, or two things, they're male and they've got grey hair. And so sometimes I'm likened to George Clooney. Stylish. That's what I take from it. Sometimes I'm likened to Jonathan Edwards, the Olympian now sports presenter. We look quite similar. 
Sometimes I'm likened, not to someone who has gray hair, but Jamie Oliver. Because people say, hey, you're a bit like him. In the church world, we weren't expecting that. Bit of a down-to-earth individual who breaks all the rules. A Jamie Oliver of the church world. I quite like that one. And then sometimes people say, oh, you're a bit like Paul O'Grady. <laughs> you look like him. And there's other things. <laughs> now, what we're going to find here is that John the Baptist uses images, uses reference points, not of people they knew, but the whole big story of Scripture. And so in this moment where John the Baptist says, oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's talking to a bunch of people who knew all about moments where lambs were important. Moments throughout their history that actually a lamb that's connected with God was of ultimate significance. So I want to just quickly look at three. So three of these. First one is this, very beginning of the book, Genesis 20, 22. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's given this promise that he's going to have a son. Eventually it happens. And then having happened, God then says, but will you trust me? Will you follow me in all obedience? And God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And for our 21st century mind, we're like, no, 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 that's properly nuts. But in it, it was this moment within a time where things weren't quite as they are now. Where God asks for something, and it's actually not about the sacrifice, it's about the obedience. And as they're going to this point of sacrifice and Isaac is there with Abraham. And Isaac says, right, we're going to make a sacrifice, but, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham doesn't turn to his son and go, don't worry, you're it. He says, God will provide. And sure enough, at the end of the story, what we find is Isaac is spared. And a sheep or lamb is provided. See, the lamb of God speaks of the lamb that is provided by God. That Jesus isn't any old person. Jesus is God, provided by God. John the Baptist points and says, hey, you want to know who this Jesus is? Jesus is the provision of God for all. Second lamb image, Passover lamb, Exodus 12, the people of God find themselves in slavery, wanting deliverance, call on God to come and rescue them. And God does that rescue by asking Pharaoh to release his people. Pharaoh says, no way. And so God continuously puts the pressure on Pharaoh. It's the very last moment where it's that, actually, if you don't release my people, the firstborn are all going to die of everything. And Pharaoh says, I don't care. I'm the most powerful. And so, Jesus, so God says to his people, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you by you sacrificing a lamb and using the blood of that lamb over your doorposts of your front door. And then when the angel of death comes, he'll wipe out the firstborn that you will be protected. We hear it and we think, what? Like, what? And yet that's what happens. And Pharaoh cannot contain anymore. The regime of evil is broken and the deliverance of God's people is given. And they're taken into freedom through the sacrifice of a lamb. 
See, this lamb of God speaks of a lamb of deliverance. A lamb of deliverance of the ultimate dominion over us. The ultimate dominion of, of death, of sin, of the power of sin that causes us to live outside of the best that God has for us. And John says, oh, this one to come, oh, he's the lamb of God. He's the Passover lamb. This is who Jesus is. Now, watch that as we go through the account because in the end, we'll discover that at the very moment, on the sixth day, as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus was dying. Why? Because he's the Lamb of God. Third one, Isaiah 53, which talks about this Messiah King, a servant king who's come to lay down his life in order that the oppression of sin can be broken over us. The consequences of us living with ourselves at the center rather than God can be dealt with, that we can know forgiveness and acceptance and the image that's then given at the very center of this promise of who this servant king and is going to be and how they're going to do this, is we're told, oh, they're like a lamb, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter in order to bring us freedom from sin. John the Baptist says, who is Jesus? Oh, he's the lamb of God. He's the one who is God's provision. He's the one who is God's deliverance. And he's the one who can remove our sin that allows us to know that we are eternally loved by God and eternally accepted by God. He's the lamb. Then John the Baptist says, oh, and it's about a dove. When you look at Jesus, you need to know it's about a dove. It's that moment, you see. And John the the gospel writer doesn't detail everything that's going on here. See, in the other accounts, he's kind of assuming you've read one of the other accounts about who Jesus is. It might be Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in those, it details this moment where John the Baptist meets Jesus. And in that moment, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And he says, as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove, and then there's a voice from heaven that declares, this is my son, with him I am well pleased and I love. Or I love him and I'm well pleased. But John, the gospel writer, kind of takes it for granted. We kind of know that part. Remember, he's just doing the story by saying, hey, there's a witness here. And this is John the Baptist's witness of what he saw in that moment. He saw a dove coming down. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because what the dove represents, you see, the dove represents the anointing of a king, Isaiah 11.2. This is a whole promise, the whole of Isaiah. You know, if you want to get, if you, however much you want to geek out on this stuff, if you want to see the wonder of who Jesus is, read Isaiah as well, it will help you. We're already saying, read John, now read the whole of Isaiah. Maybe just read Isaiah 11, then do 53 uh, through to uh, probably 60. That'll do you good. Anyway, some of you are like, man, I just thought we were just doing John. Yeah, it would just help us. Take it at different points. Anyway, Isaiah 11 is this promise of the one who's going to come to be our king and to free us into the goodness of what God has for us. And what we're told to, is the sign is this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. When John the Baptist says there's a dove resting on him, 
as the Spirit rests on him. It's saying, oh, this is the anointed king. I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the king. He's the anointed king, Jesus. And Jesus is a king who's come to establish his kingdom, which is we're going to go on to see throughout this story of Jesus' life, is a kingdom of love, of life, and of goodness. So he's the anointed one. But he's not only telling us that he's the anointed king, John's also using this moment of the dove resting on Jesus to remind us, again, of the bigger story of the Bible. It's like hyperlinks. So we're looking at it, it's like, oh, this. It's like Wikipedia. Oh, now I'm here. Oh, and now I've clicked on that word. I've suddenly realized I'm over here. And then I've clicked on that word. I'm over here. This is like the Bible. It's like hyperlink. Hyperlink, like time to what? The very beginning. Genesis 1, 2. It shouldn't say 2, 12. It should say 1, 2. That's what happens if you do your PowerPoint slides too early in the morning. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Remember, this is a scene where Jesus has just been baptized in the water. Comes out, and then we're told the Spirit, like a dove, rests on him. This is a moment of new creation. Just as in the original creation story, the Spirit is there hovering over the waters, working with the Word over the Father's declaration to declare out of love the whole of creation. This is that moment again where the Trinity, the Father speaks over the Son. This is whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The Spirit is actively there to birth this new creation, the restoration of the whole of the cosmos. Not just your salvation. Man, that's way too small. The restoration of the whole of the cosmos. That's what's been promised. A dove resting on him. Genesis 1. The start of the new creation. Which is why John then says, Man, if you think I'm something special, I'm nothing. Like I baptized in water. The one's coming who's going to baptize you in the spirit. Is going to cause you to be overwhelmed in the spirit. See, this one who births a new creation is the one who's then going to birth a people of the new creation. And to be a people of the new creation, you need to be changed. You need to be changed by the activity of the king, who's going to do that through his life, death, and resurrection. But also, you're going to have to be changed inwardly. The promises that are there, so you find it in Ezekiel 36, 37. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But if we're to be a people of this new creation that Jesus is instigating, we're going to need new life inside of us. It can't be down to us. So what Jesus says, I'm going to cause you to be overwhelmed by the spirit. Overwhelmed by the Spirit, baptized, that's what the word means, overwhelmed, in order what? That you would be made new to live in light of this new creation. And as Lawrence already promised us, you know, that's not like a one-off moment, that's an ongoing day-by-day, poor Santa continue moment of pausing and just being saturated by the wonder of who Jesus is and the Spirit that he gives us. So much so that when you get to that seventh sign of the seventh day of Jesus resurrecting, and in that moment, he find him in discovery in a closed room, and he appears. Ooh, where's he come from? I don't know, he just appeared. 
He then gathers his friends on and does what? It says he breathes on them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The new creation has come. This isn't a work of us. This is a work of his. Just as Sarah promised, you know, that living water isn't something we well up from within. Man, if I, if I work harder, if I dig deeper, I'll get there. No, no. I tap into the source, to the vine, to the well. And I allow Jesus, the one who breathed his Holy Spirit into me, to breathe new life into me. So John the Baptist says, who is he? Oh, he's one like a dove. That's what he's characterized by, the dove, which speaks of the anointed king, the new creation, but the one who then brings us as his people into that new creation. Third thing. We're then told that it's not just a lamb, not just a dove, but a son. As I said, there's that word, it says the chosen one. Actually, if you look at it, and there's different ways, and if you look at the NIV, it says that, in the NASB, it says that, in the ESV, it does that. I think in New Living, it gives a slightly different one. And actually, that original Greek, what it actually is revealed, and at this point, I'm standing on the shoulders of others who've done the hard work of learning Greek. Please don't be impressed with me. All I'm doing is I'm standing on the shoulders of others. But that original Greek word that's there, that the commentators, the translators, the Bible are wrestling with, actually means this, the same nature as the Father. That John the Baptist ultimately wants us to see that when he looked on the Messiah, when he looked on Jesus, he saw someone who had the same nature as God the Father. And if you remember how Richard started us off on this journey of looking at the Gospel of John, of John the Gospel writer's desire is what? That we'd understand that this resurrected Jesus is the Son of God. And when we look at Jesus, we're not just to see the Lamb of God. We're not just to see the one where the dove came from above. Um, that's a reference only 20% of the room are going to get. Um, who births new creation, who fills us as his people, we're ultimately to see one who is the son of God that causes the God who is unknown to be seen. That as we go through the pages of John, we're not going to dissect it and think, oh, what do I think about? No, no, we get to look at it and say, look at the wonder of the son because as we see the son, we see the father and the spirit at work. Because the son is very nature, the same as the father. And therefore we see the wonder of who this God is. A God who's interested in you and who's interested in me. A God who came to rescue you, came to rescue me. Out of love. Not out of duty. Out of love. Why? Because this God, father, son and spirit has always been in community of love. And created everything as an overflow of that community of love. And we've kind of sought to live outside of it, but it doesn't quite work. And the invitation as we see the sun is to realize, no, our true hope is with him. Father, Son, and Spirit. In this community of love. Where we realize that we are more loved than we could dare to believe. So John the Baptist says, come, behold, this Jesus. So when we see him as the lamb, 
When we see him as the one anointed by the spirit, like a dove. When we see him as the son, I think we start to realize why John says, man, I couldn't even untie his shoes. I can't even untie his shoes. Who am I? Who am I? It's just not important. You need to know who he is, who Jesus is. That's what's important. I wonder if that's the point of our lives, that eternal question that keeps being asked, who are you? Who are you? For us actually to rest and say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Who I am is of no real significance to you. Who Jesus is, is of all eternal significance to you. And maybe that's what our lives are meant to be like. Therefore, let me leave us with this. Two questions to end. It's all about Jesus. It's what John's wanting us to see. It's when John the Baptist is the first witness is coming alongside to present. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? It's uncomfortable at that point because it goes from theory. It goes from questioning to reality of like, like, what do I really think about this? Now, for some of us, we're going to, well, I don't know, man, you're talking some stories I haven't got a clue about, and you seemed okay, but now I'm a bit like, I'm not sure, and I want to ask some more questions. Great. Maybe that's the point. Maybe what you see is it causes you to question more. Maybe it's that you say, well, who... I'm starting to see Jesus is, is maybe, maybe he is the Lamb of God. Maybe he is the one where the dove anointed him to do something new. Maybe he is the Son of God. My guess is for many of us in this room, we say, yeah, I, I kind of know who Jesus is, and I'm saying that I want my life to be engulfed around him. I want him to be in the center of the throne of my life. Well, let's allow more and more the beauty of who he is to do this second question. How will what you know shape your life? So for, we'll go the opposite way around this time. Like for some of us, we know him. That's great. But this isn't a following of Jesus. It isn't about knowing, and that's where it stops. It's about knowing that shapes how we live. How is it shaping our life today? Not tomorrow. How's it going to shape our life differently today? Maybe it's we're in that point of starting to discover, I think Jesus is who you say he is. And that therefore means that I've got to shape my life differently. And maybe you want to talk to me at the end of what that therefore looks like. Maybe it's that first group I talked about. You're like, well, I'm not sure. Maybe for you what it means is maybe it's worth a bit more investigating. Maybe it's worth asking some questions. Maybe it's worth joining us on this journey as we look through this amazing story of John, giving the facts of who Jesus is. Can I pray for us? And then we're done. Jesus, I thank you for the wonder of who you are. I thank you for the wonder of how you're revealed through the Bible. I thank you from the very first page through to the very end. It speaks of the wonder of you, Jesus. And then I thank you for this good news that John presents of who you are. And I ask, would you keep 
revealing more and more of the wonder of you, Jesus, through this Gospel of John. And I pray, Jesus, that as we see more of you, I pray that our lives would be shaped more by you. Ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen.